0: On some level, it should be unsurprising to those of us who know, who understand the history of property, that a defense of private property, even intellectual property, would lead to this kind of genocide because that is what it is for.
1: The Death Panel. If you'd like to support the show and get access to our second weekly episode, become a patron at patreoncom pod. So today we have a very special treat. We are being joined by Vicki Osterweil. Thank you so much for coming on. This is honestly so long overdue and we're so excited to talk to you about your work today.
0: I'm I'm so excited to be here. Um, I, I love this podcast and I think it, you guys are doing just incredible work. Um, so, oh, thank so thank you. you for having me. That's
2: very kind.
1: So Vicky is the author of the book In Defense of Looting, A Riotous History of Uncivil Action and also co-host of the podcast, Ceres and Vicky Ranked the Movies, which I absolutely highly recommend. Um, one you. of my favorite new podcasts. You know, post pandemic, we're,
0: we're, we're ranking all of the movies, every movie ever made. Um, so you know, it should be done probably in about a year or two. You know, doing <laughs> about five <laughs> weeks. And, so. and
2: and number one and number two, we already know are Paddington one and Paddington two. <laughs> I mean, Rotten Tomatoes
0: has spoken.
2: <laughs> who are who are two two humble trans girls
0: in West Philadelphia to disagree with the critical establishment?
1: Actually, so like actually, in many ways today is so perfectly timed to have you on because we're recording on the anniversary of the 1992 L.A. riots as well as this is going to be our episode that comes out right before May Day, um, which we didn't really plan. But that's OK. You know, I was joking already this morning. Like if I had consulted Nancy Reagan's astrologer, I don't think I would have been able to pick a better day <laughs> yeah. to have Vicky on the show. But Vicky, your book is fantastic. It came out last year. Um, it was a long time in the making, but you go through this really complicated history of of looting as a tactic and as a social conception. And I wondered if you could just sort of break down before we get into what the book is and the premise sort of like how it came to be.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so, so much for the kind words like it's been so exciting. I think, you know, Basically, when the book was coming out, I was like, okay, this book is either going to be like ignored completely, like most, you know, books by weirdo radicals, or it's going to be like completely hated by the right. Like I was not prepared. Um, so it's really, really nice to be hearing people now who are appreciative of it. Um, yeah, the book came to be, so during Ferguson, um, in, you know, in 2014, um, there was a very different discourse around rioting and looting, um, than we even had mm-hmm. in 20, in uh, the 2020 and the George Floyd uprisings. Where a lot of people were saying, you know, oh, I support the movement, like I support this, you know, this 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 Black Lives Matter thing that's coming up. Like I I, I I'm anti-racist, but I just can't get behind looting. Like I just think it's wrong. Um, and there were a lot of different arguments that that came out that emerged at that point. And I had actually remembered um, in 2011 uh, when the London riots happened um, mm-hmm. in the UK. The 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 sort of organized UK left, um, which was which was very white, um, dominated. I completely disavowed the riots. Like people like Zizek um, were saying, you know, oh, this mm-hmm. is like a consumer riot. Like there was all <laughs> this theory. And what that ended up doing, and it's only now really starting to change in the UK, is it destroyed um, this huge possibility. There was this massive uprising and it just destroyed this moment of solidarity. And it basically destroyed the possibility for like a bigger continued street movement for many years. Because, you know, if you saw the interviews with people who were being Uh, jailed during uh, 2011. They were all saying, you know, I'll do it again. Like they were getting, you know, eight years for, you know, walking into a store and walking out with a pair of sneakers. Like it was really, really brutal repression. Mm
1: -hmm. There was no
0: support from the left or from the people who were organized for jail support and stuff. But they were saying, you know, we'll do this again. Like what we did was right. You know, there was there, it was so politicized and because of race And classism, um, a lesser, lesser extent class, but 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 mostly like race and class and a misanalysis of the police. The UK left basically told them to drop dead. And obviously there were people who weren't like that Um, there. Those are the people most likely to like still be around, like in the struggle, like the people who were who were supporting, who were participating, who were part of it. So I don't want to, you know, blanket whatever. But I remember how disastrous that was. I had become much more active um, uh, during 2011, during that wave of, of movement. Um, and I had seen what that had done. And I also had, you know, encountered like a lot of thought from people who I respected and liked. And we had these sort of arguments about it and we talked about it. and. And it was just seeing that start to coalesce again in the US, like that, that sort of, it just felt really important to intervene. Um, uh, so I wrote this thing in defense of looting, saw the name of the article at the New Inquiry, where I was an editor, um, for, for a very long time. Um, and shout outs to the new Greek crew who are still keeping it somehow going. They're really beautiful. Um, you know, and, and, and the piece largely because of the help of, uh, strangely D Ray McKesson, <laughs> who started sharing it, uh, when he was sort of coming up on his, like on his sort of journey into becoming paid to seem like an activist. Um, <laughs> he shared it, he shared it a lot and, and it sort of took a life of its own. And then, um, really, really movingly. Um, I remember during the Baltimore uprising the next year, I remember seeing a YouTube video from people, um, that were analyzing the targets that had been hit in Baltimore. It was just sort of this video, homemade video that they were using. And they had sort of had my essay in the comments and I was like, Oh my God. Okay. Like this is really helpful. And right around then I was approached by a book publisher who will not be named, um, <laughs> who wanted me to turn into a book. I was very grateful and appreciative. I was, you know, trying to be a writer or whatever. And I turned it into a manuscript, um, and then it. uh, This is and this is not that interesting. But then, then there was a lot of drama that involved it. Eventually, um, after sitting on a desk for much too long, um, ending up with bold type, uh, where I'm very happy it landed. Um, So that's why it came out in 2020, even though most of the manuscript was finished in you know late 2015.
1: Yeah, and I mean it's not like it got any less uh, relevant.
3: (laughs) Right. Yeah. I was was gonna say, hearing you explain uh, what happened around uh, 2012, in particular, the kind of like Intra left conversation. It's it strikes me that it seems like so little was learned between 2012 <laughs> and 2020 on certain parts of yeah uh, the particularly the you know quote unquote organized left. Mm-hmm. I suppose I'm I'm saying that I I want to be clear. I guess I'm saying that as a joke because in particular I think in your book you lay out really well how the idea of riots or uh, or looting being at least portrayed as these sort of completely stochastic events mm-hmm. um, or, right. or whatever lends to a lot of decrying them as uh you know not productive uh <laughs> organized <laughs> actions yes yeah right definitely and i think
0: you you know like like everything like um in some ways things have shifted um i i don't want to give too much credence to this but the defense of property which i argue um is ultimately a defense of whiteness um those two defenses um as they express themselves you know in around ferguson around the original black lives matter wave um Those defenses were like, the only thing that's acceptable is nonviolence, right? And 2020, like particularly, I think the burning of the third precinct, um, but, but so many of the things that happened in, in 2020 was so widespread and so powerful, um, and so inspiring that you had people, the defense of property lost a lot of ground. So people would say, okay, I support, I get it. You know, you hit a target, you burn down a police station, fine. But like, how come you would knock over a Christopher Columbus or like a, or like a perfect small business? Like, look at that poor little pawn shop that you like, that's been family owned for a hundred years, you know, like, um. I think like people, so, 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 um, in some ways the argument is identical, right? The argument is, um, attacking property has nothing to do with getting free, um, and fighting the police, which is a lie, um, uh, 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 and is just incorrect factually, historically. Um, but that, but the objects that they've had to defend have, they have fewer things they can defend. They don't feel like they can defend a target anymore. They don't feel like they can defend a cop car anymore. And that's, right, that's big. And that's, just because the the riots have continued to grow in, in strength and frequency, um, not because of any discursive transformation, right? And I think, like, you know, obviously, like, I think the discourse is important. I wrote a book, like, I am participating <laughs> in it. Like, I obviously, like, I spend my Somewhat time... Someone invested in that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I, it's not like I don't think it's valuable to have these arguments and have these thoughts. But like, ultimately, like the greatest piece of abolitionist education that ever happened in our lifetimes was the third precinct on fire. And there will never be a book that has anything like the reach or meaning. Um, and, you know, you can see that, you know, I quoted in my book, like Huey P. Newton talks about that in the 60s, about how Watts, you know, the, the extent uh, and the nature of the dist- or the extent of the destruction was such that, you know, no matter what the news, whatever the white news or white politicians narrativized it as, the, uh, the extent of the issue was, was communicated to all the black communities in the country, right? Um, the, the way that direct action functions as communication and as discourse, I think, is not talked about is not understood on the left. Cause the left Oh yeah. and here, here I want to, you know, I, I, this is some new territory for me that I'm really getting into recently. Cause again, when I was coming up like in 2011, a lot of like anarchists and ultra left were like obsessed with this, like, you know, sort of French theory that was like complaining about the left. And like, it was really annoying. And I was like, Ugh, like we don't even have a left, like we don't yeah, even right. have like 15 <laughs> people who can like show up to do Nothing something to
2: complain about. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> and like, and like, alas, the Trump years has given us a left to complain about. And it has become really <laughs> clear that, um, that, Like a lot of what the left does as like an organized force is turn politics into discourse, right? Turn events into, or excuse me, turn events and liberation struggles into discourse in order to turn them into politics and power. Um, And I think I've always worried that my book would Um, do that. Instead, it just made all the leftists I don't like really angry. Um, So (laughs) it it sort of worked out okay.
1: It's so important. And you talk about this early on in the book that there are just there are ways that we are told that these things go down. There are there are lies that we are told about nonviolent protest. And in a lot of ways, a lot of these sort of false constructions that you try and break down and push back against in your book, not not only like, uh, you know, suppress power. They're anti-solidaristic, anti-solid- but they also really limit the political imagination as to what's possible. And I mean, gr- I, gr- I grew up in L.A., like post Rodney King. And there was this, like, sort of sense that, like, after the 1992 riots and after the looting that happened, that there was, like, kind of, like, no turning back in L.A. and that, like, things had just changed. And, you know, it's obviously not, like, politically changed much, but as a, um, you know, relation, like, as a way of, like, developing my own relationship with, like, authority and the police, it, like, absolutely changed my perception of, like, what the police were there to do, Right. Mm -hmm. And you talk about looting, you know, as a tactic, as a direct tactic to sort of rebuff these constructions of property relations and these racialized narratives about power and decency and respectability. And you really talk about how like looting has the power to show how arbitrary white supremacist authority is. I was wondering if you could just sort of unpack that context real quick before we get into the broader discussion Mm. because i think it's a really important point for people to understand and you do a great job communicating it.
0: Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Um, and, and your question was too generative. I have like too many things I want to say, like, Sorry. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, <laughs> like, to try and respond. I just, am my, my, I'm going a mile a minute, which is great. That's how I know, like, we're, you know, we're, we're in conversation and solidarity and it's beautiful. I'm excited, but I apologize <laughs> if I ramble here. Um, so, um, so yeah, so for the first thing sort of about, about 92, like, I think one of the things that's really interesting about 92, um, and you know, it was an LA focus, but it, it, it you know, it, at at its height, it was all over the West Coast and there were riots on the East Coast as well. They're much smaller, obviously. Um, and one of the things that really happened in 92, um discursively, I talk about this in the book, um, is that because there was this gang truce that led to, right, the 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 two warring factions, the Bloods and a and a faction of Crips had a truce the day before the Ronnie King um, you know, before the before the verdict came down, um, and that truce like allowed them to fight the the police. Well, one of the one of the um mad, incredible effects of the riots of the 92 uprising um, was gang de-escalation across the country. Um there were gang truces That spread across the country in the wake of gangs seeing how effective that was, and it's hard to imagine now because the way gangs are structured now um, is very loose. Um, You know, they're they're it's sort of block by block for the most part. Like they're connected to sort of um, somewhat large international sort of like cartels that are doing the transport of the drugs, but like but like the gangs on the street are are small, Um, and it's hard to remember or realize that they were these sort of big paramilitary almost paramilitary organizations that did sort of emerge out of the corpse of the sixties movements, right? Like that, there was some of those organizational tactics and styles, like do emerge from movement. And we have to embrace and understand that, that like working class organizations, like are constantly emerging and changing and re-emerging, And like, sometimes mm-hmm. they're in direct resistance to, you know, society and the state and capitalism. And sometimes they're not. And that doesn't mean that they're disorganized just because they're not in a, a union or a party in a way that we understand. Um, mm-hmm. It also doesn't mean that gangs are good. I want to be clear. That they're like often patriarchal. They, they, they had, you know, sort of cult-like reverence for the leader. They were pretty comfortable with violence. Like, obviously, like, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to get pro-gang here. But, but I, what I do want to talk <laughs> about is that what happened in, 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 in the wake of 92 in a policing way is that the police tried really hard to break this truce all over the country, right? And what the police started doing is they started. They saw that the truce was a threat to police domination of the urban space, and so they tried to break up truce barbecues in LA. They would. They would. Um, they would put. They would. They would get. Uh, what's the. What's the word? They would infiltrate the gangs and try and cause drama um, and violence despite that and that was a that was a nationwide police tactic to increase gang violence right that right. was what they wanted they wanted the gang violence to increase because they knew that if the gangs were unified then that meant that the working class the and particularly the black working class was like organized against them right so they tried to unify them it doesn't really work. Um, homicides in gang homicides start dropping immediately on the west coast, 30 percent in 93. Um, and then they sort of peak and go down uh, across the country in the following years, um, which obvi- often gets gets prescribed you know and and crime statistics are very poorly understood and 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 I don't claim to have solved it. Um, but uh, so so it's not clear that, but that was a major factor in the the ending of the sort of gang moment of the 90s. But what police did, what police learned to do was to um to disorganize the gangs Um to. And so then you get this, this, you know, this idea in the in the late 2000s, you have this show, this classic show, The Wire, which, you know, it goes into all these like different aspects of society. And it's really real and gritty. And what it's really doing is it's romanticizing the counterinsurgent gang destruction, you know, in which right. they infiltrate a gang, really learn about it and then chop off the head. That's what was happening in the wake of the Rodney King riots. That was the policing paradigm that was getting um, built. I bring all of that incredibly long aside up to say one of the reasons <laughs> it's valuable to know the history is because we can see the stuff happening in real time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of these strategies for repression, for police formation, um, for ideology production, they are old. Um, they're repetitive. Um, they are structurally similar. And if we can see the sort of pattern historically, then we can recognize it happening in the present and we can push back against it. And that, and that's why I think it was so valuable to talk about the history of the ideology of looting um, and white supremacy, uh, which is what the book is. So to get to, to your point about how looting sort of strikes against it, um, I think, you know, and again, I wrote a whole book that makes this argument, so I'm, I'm going to be quick here and vulgar, but... Basically, um, uh, property, private property, as it is, as it is developed, um, under set, under conditions of settler colonialism and imperialism, um, is a structure of consent, right? It is, it is, it is not, it is a social construct. It is, a, um, you know, Marx calls it a relation between people, right? Like this is like, these are all, um, uh, or a social relation. Um, property is a construct that is built on consent and state violence. Um, and the the Uber or property from which all other property flows is the property of whiteness, you know. And 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 here I'm going to get into the nitty gritty of the argument again. And in, in the revolutionary period in America, and, and here I'm building on the work of of incredibly important people uh, theorists like Barbara Jean Fields, um, Christina Sharp, um, you know, uh, uh, Sadia Hartman, um, a lot of Black women. Um, du Bois is here as well. So there's there's this incredible wealth of of knowledge and. You know, you'll be shocked to hear the Black radical tradition is forty years ahead of of the rest of you know <laughs> politics. Like we're just you know now the left is just catching up to intersectionality, which was like an immediate critique of the sixties, like coming out in the seventies. Anyways, but yeah, like the the in the revolutionary period, the American revolutionary period, um, what's happening is that to justify um, their revolt against uh, against the 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 king, you know, they 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 you know their big argument, which we all learn in school, was no taxation without representation, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But of course, they're like a bunch of slave owners and 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 um, <laughs> and settlers who are like at at literally permanent war with the indigenous nations all around them, um, enslaving people, um, not just black, but at that point, ma- majority African by the revolutionary period, but still like, but still significantly some European, um, you know, Irish, Scots, um, criminals, um, some, you know, and, and many indigenous people. Um, the, the first, the first enslaved people on this continent were, were indigenous people. When Columbus steps off the Nina um, in 1492, the first thing he says is these people will make fine servants, which is the 15th century word for slaves, right? It's, it's, From the very beginning so they say okay well what do we do about we have this problem because like we want to argue that we deserve life liberty and pursuit of happiness as a way to like revolt against our king you know um like because we don't like the way that that policy is going in the british empire and we don't get enough respect because they pay all attention to the sugar colonies and the caribbean and blah 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 so what do we do about these people who we need to enslave in order to keep our economy going oh well they're just not people they're (laughs) not humans they're black right? We are, we are, we are the people who have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and black people. And at that point also, you know, um, mostly poor women and children also, um, right. Which is, uh, uh, although children are still developing and I, I think you've gotten into that in another panel, so I won't get too into it. Those people aren't people, not really, they aren't subjects. Um, and if we look at uh, the, the incredible work of Sylvia Winter, we can see that this is sort of Tied up in in the very very depths of the Enlightenment concept of reason and humanity and humanism, so all of all of this stuff sort of develops basically as a way to justify you know this sort of national project of quote of democracy um, in in the United States, um, and as it sort of and, and so but but the the thing is though like whiteness isn't actually descended from Europe, right? At that point, like not everyone descended from Europe was like welcomed into the category of whiteness. Um, So whiteness gets developed as a property that you can have, that you can be given by the state and by social agreement that gives you access to rights, citizenship, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, and blackness and indigeneity, um, come from the blood, right? They are, they are, they are, um, they are ontological. They are innate to the people, um, who have them. Um, and that distinction, which, you know, in the, across the 19th century, whiteness sort of doesn't include anyone who isn't protestant right um or from or from england or eventually german ex- or well german is, is late even um you know so 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 whiteness and this is you know noel Ignatieff talked about this is this capacious category that can be given to people by participating in the um, protection of property from the unruly non-white indigenous queer masses um poor masses um as a jew this is like very important analysis for me because we have only been welcomed into whiteness um as long as israel remains as this horrifying settler colony and like our our whiteness is like is is totally based on on that um on on that disjuncture, that, 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 that oppression that, um, and, and as we've seen in the last, you know, five years, um, a lot of people are very willing to withdraw our whiteness. Um, if it, if it is helpful for forming a sort of fascist formation. So when people loot, (laughs) when people loot, they are attacking, All of these roots at once, Um, they are going to this history of whiteness as property and the history of property as ownership of indigenous and black people and lands. Um, And when you loot, you show there's all this stuff in the city. And if it weren't for the police... We could all just have it. Um, and it's all made by people just like us, some of them on the other side of the world, some of them in prisons here. Um, so, you know but 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 these all these commodities are just made by people like us, and it is the police and it is the the white supremacist structure of consent that keeps us from having um, having free access to that because if we were to have free access to that, how would
2: how would ecocidal profits ever be made, you know? I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the relationship between, because I think one thing that happened in this, you sort of make this argument in defense of looting. And then one thing that you talk about is the way that this gets turned into discourse. You know, the left turns it into discourse and turns it into politics, which I, I do, you know, I think my initial reaction is like, why do we have to have an argument about this? Right. Like, why, why is this something that even has to be like debated? It's something that that happens. But you make a point in the book about the relationship sort of between movement organization and looting, mm. and I, I mean, I th- I think for a lot of people that see looting as some activity that's like outside of politics, one of the things that they they, they point to is it's sort of the absence of organization. And I wonder, you, you write a little bit about the the great strikes of eighteen seventy seven, mm. which I think like a lot, like a broad section of the left is like will point to like this is a moment, uh, where you know there's sort of like a a, a pivotal moment in like the history of the American. Left, but like I wonder if you could talk about the relationship between like organization and 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 looting. Yeah,
0: definitely. I, I sort of like want to do. I have this. I have this this sort of bifurcated impulse. On the one hand, I sort of want to be like, no, like looting. <laughs> Is um, is actually political and is engaged in these moments and appears in this mo- in these in these sort of um, in these you know uprisings. But I also want to say, like, yes, looting is not political if your definition of the political means something that can be controlled discursively um, and and funneled into a project of state capture and formation, um, which is you know I think what so much of the the twentieth century Marxist project has looked like and has theorized that the political is a thing that you can turn into a form of power that can capture the state. Um, and yes, I do think at least for now, um, looting is not, uh, is not actually political in that way. Um, it refuses the terms of, of control. Um, it refuses the terms of um, of clear communication with the enemy. Um, it refuses the the terms of sort of uh, militant capturing of the state. Um, and so in that way, it is not political, like as the left sees it. Um, in terms of the question of organizing, I have the same response, right? So on the one hand, you know, we, I was just talking about gangs. Like, I want to say like, well, the working class is kind of always organized. We have to be to survive, right? We take care of each other. One of the things that's been sort of like lost is that like mutual aid as a a formal political practice, you know, is a sort of recent development, but it's just a fact of working class life and always has been because we can't survive without each other. And I think that's, that's how I prefer to think about movement history in general um, and looting in particular is like, it happens. It happens in these moments of anti-police revolt. It has happened like across the entire history of capitalism. Um, And and, and what a lot of organizers have done as I sort of tried to trace in in that chapter about the labor movement, what a lot of organizers have done have said, this is great. It like brought all these people to our meetings, but now they have to stop looting and start doing real (laughs) politics, right? And when organizations take that turn, um, it often spells the end of the movement or the end of the energy or it comes after the movement has already ended anyway. And then like things fall apart and then they, they sort of think that it's, that the problem is the riotous masses in the first place or whatever. All of which is to like, to, to sort of reframe it again, like around, around the race question as well. Like I think, you know, one of the, the the greatest social revolution in American history, um, which is I think now increasingly beginning to be recognized as such, but still isn't, um, is the what Du Bois calls the general strike of the slaves, um, the Civil War, which he defines as sort of starting in eighteen fifty four and ending with the collapse of Reconstruction in eighteen seventy seven, with eighteen sixty 1860 to eighteen sixty five just being the height of the you know the Confederacy secession and the violence, um, because there is out and out civil war like across the South throughout that. What you have in that period is you have um, basically uh, fifty thousand. So, so from from the from eighteen fifty one and the Fugitive Slave Act's passage to eighteen sixty, you have I think the number is fifty thousand. I don't have it right in front of me, and it's been a while since I read since I read Black Reconstruction. I'm, I'm do a reread. Um, fifty thousand enslaved people a year are escaping their plantations, right? And then when the Civil War comes, five hundred thousand people in the span of four years. Flee the plantation, throw down their tools. You know, um, destroy the South, destroy the plantation agriculture, uh, uh, destroy the possibility of the of the the Confederate war effort because they're starving. Um, so you get these things like in eighteen sixty three, you get you get um, white Confederate women looting bread um, in all over in the cities of the of the Confederacy because the Confederate dollars are useless, are valueless, and the economy is totally collapsed because all of the slaves have thrown down their tools, um, or taken over their plantations, or fled to the north, or the south, or the west. That is a huge, huge, massive social movement, just tremendous of a level. Like, you know, it was, it was one eighth of the people enslaved in America fled their plantation, which means that like and then there were probably another quarter of them threw down tools, stayed where they were, but went on strike. Right. It was just this, this massive, massive movement, but it wasn't "Quote unquote organized," they were illiterate. They were mostly <laughs> illiterate. They weren't in organizations. They were disparate. They were far from each other. Right, like they were not. Th- this was not like. An organization and the, and in fact, the reason that the Underground Railroad, I think, gets so focused on is because it looks, it's the only thing that looks like a formal organization that we have access to in that, in that period. And even that was wildly informal and dispersed and, and like, you know, sort of within the urban fabric of communities. The point is that there is a belief on the left that organizing is the good thing that makes something revolutionary and if something is disorganized it is bad and unrevolutionary and that's obviously a tautology because you like point to the revolutionary thing you say that was organized and you point to the thing that fails you say that wasn't organized enough Um, it's a tautology but it's also like a very powerful weapon um, for disciplining movement and for disciplining people um, rising up in the ways that they want to Um, so for me you know on the question of organization or whatever um, I think a lot of people get really really obsessed with Trying to discover a, a sort of strategic model, um, and this is sort of, I think, a gift of, of Marx and, and Lenin. Frankly, um, uh, at their worst, Marx at his worst, Lenin in general. You know, at me on Twitter, um, but uh, but um, you know that, that, that the point of political work and struggle, um, and theory is to develop a strategy where you can sort of, where the, where the left can sort of, the revolutionary can sort of be a general who, you know, is moving his troops and sort of this, this very sort of hierarchical idea of, of what struggle and organization looks like from that viewpoint, then yes, riots are super disorganized and they are non-revolutionary and they're non-political. Um, however, like if, if we want to look at the history of of struggle and, and uprising for me, like the struggles that I see that pointed towards more freedom, even if they didn't win, um, were often not organized that way. And the moments like 1917 in Russia or 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 19, you know, the 50s and 60s in China or the 20s in China, indeed, those moments also are built on this distributed, disorganized revolt and struggle, and then organizations sort of move through capture that energy and point it at capturing the state, sometimes successfully, sometimes not. And that's the history of 20th century revolution. And actually this fetish for imagining a strategy that allows us to capture state power on the backs of this distributed movement um, has, we have really given it a try. I think, I think the forces of liberation have really tried it. Like it was the 20th century. It didn't work super great. I don't think we should keep trying it. We should at least make a different mistake
1: yeah and i you love you use this uh sort of anachronistic framing of looting where you you roll looting back to apply to um the movement of slaves freeing themselves because very much what people were doing like in freeing themselves was pushing back and negating this sort of like primary property relationship which was dictating most of the political discourse at the time. Right. So there's this sort of like parallel development between the emancipation movement and the development of police. And they both sort of come up um, simultaneously. And in many ways, police are the answer to so many people um, freeing themselves and Mm -hmm. pushing back against this like, property relationship as being their primary definition of like humanness or not humanness. I was wondering if we could get into that sort of history of the police that you bring in the book. You get into the NYPD, but you also get into the um, British Bobbies, which were very much founded by like importing these colonial tactics and trying to reproduce these systems of control and suppression and surveillance that... You know, had been sort of tried and perfected in other places in the British Empire.
0: Yeah, definitely. Thank you for for that that question. I I love to do police slander, so I'm I'm so here for yeah. it. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. A cab, one, three, one, two. FTP. All cops are bastards. Um, I um, I yeah. The police emerge. Proto police forces emerge um, basically wherever um, colonial labor regimes um, occur. For example, um, in the, in the Caribbean sugar colonies, um, you have, you know, British, British soldiers um, who it, at that time, you know, this is 16th, 17th, 18th century. It's very, very expensive to, um, to, to maintain a soldier, like a, a soldier in the field um, uh, across the ocean. It, it's why so much of the British empire relied on developing local leadership, right? Um And, and, and Spanish, you know, Spanish, Colonial management also involved that and involved sort of, you know, producing these sort of racial hierarchies of mixed um, versus like pure Spanish that like allowed that to happen. So there's all these different strategies, but one of, but, but anyway, the British mostly had a very, uh, their, their, their strategy was mostly a relatively minimal Occupation style, um, except for in America, where it was a settler colony, and in Australia, obviously where it was a settler colony, and they both they had a lot of trouble managing those two. Um, but in the Caribbean, there was it was it was very minor numbers of people, but they still had people who were professionally there to watch, just watch. People making sugar and try and catch them when they um, when they escape the plantation and try and disorganize them when they had meetings, um, religious meetups, social meetings, trying to stop those and punish them for that. Right. Um, so that's like from the very early. These are sort of proto police. Um, this is a person who is professionally there just to surveil and monitor and repress, um, as you said in the UK. Um, when they finally developed the bobbies in 1840s, it's because they have just finished. You know, the Enclosure Acts have happened. Um, the history of capitalism in the UK. You have all of these, and indeed the rest of the world, you have all of these peasants who are being, you know, uh, the land is becoming private property, the peasants are disowned of their land, they move into the cities where they are forced into, um, they have to work for a wage in order to survive. So you suddenly have these crowds of people who, you know, don't respect the existence of time, the existence of wages, (laughs) the existence of prices, um, the existence of, you know, propriety, (laughs) bourgeois propriety. Um, You know, these people who just want to, you know, you know, do all the things that are nice to do in a city, you know, which is like, get drunk and have sex with all your friends and like, you know, like just like hang out and like run around the streets. Um, and it's a real problem because like, you know, the 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 people who want to make money in London are like, actually, we need you to like clean our houses and, you know, like uh, put together out and like knit these silks together and, you know. Turn the wool into fabric and all the shit. So, um, <laughs> so in order to like, so they're like, okay, well, what do we do? Like, we have these horrible crowds, these rise crowds. And Robert Peel, um, after whom the Bobby is named, um, had been the colonial administrator of Ireland. And in Ireland, uh, which was, you know, at that point, a, a very, very violently repressed colony, um, it, 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 you know, obviously that, that history continued to this very century, um, he de- there were these techniques that they developed to manage the the sort of villages and town centers in Ireland um, and those those techniques he basically just imported directly from the colonial front um, front lines um, and many of those techniques were based on stuff that that the colonial apparatus had learned in the Caribbean and in Southeast Asia to some extent right. um, and they just sort of, formed from the corpse of the Night Watch, which was this really ineffectual um, sort of... The Night Watch was this this organization where people had to walk around the city at night with a stick and a lantern, um, <laughs> and if they saw a crime happening, they would just have to yell and summon people, because like they didn't really have any authority. Um, it was mandatory. Um, most Night's Watchmen um, would just get blind drunk and wander the streets, being as much of a menace as anyone. It was not a very effective bulwark against crime. Um, so... Um, um, uh, so yes, it was a
2: bulwark of
0: crime, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> much like today. In fact, the night watch was producing more disorder, but it also, you know, but it also created a sort of illusion of, of property and order. So yeah, so the police develop directly out of this. Um, he, he, I know we want to talk about some modern stuff, so so I'll try and accelerate a bit here. But then in the U.S., and I, I trace this all in, in my book. Um, in the U.S., though the, the 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 policing forces emerge more directly and more quickly, not out of a sort of ineffectual night watch, but directly out of anti-enslave people, um, you know, sort of mm-hmm. terrorization um, that was largely done by militias, um, Second Amendment-driven militias, and by um, and by volunteer uh, forces of of overseers and the children of plantation owners um, and white citizens. So there were these sort of voluntary white councils. Um, They were insufficient um, in the face of the incredible levels of rebellion, organizing, and resistance that occurred on the plantation. Um, and so, especially as, as southern cities emerged and there were these slave quarters, quote unquote, which is where black people lived in relative distance and autonomy relative from their, their quote unquote owners, um, from their enslavers. Um, those, those were very, very disorderly, rebellious neighborhoods. Um, and so, uh, in, in, in the face of these, this black urbanism, the police are developed in the U S South and they're developed decades before they are developed in the UK. So the history of policing as it is usually told to the extent that it's ever taught. Cause I think we are really, we are all taught to believe that police are a historical, that they exist mm-hmm. through all time periods um, that they, that they, you know, are just a natural fact of being in a society um, <laughs> which is like a, a horrifying racist lie. Um, but you know, when we do learn some history of modern police we learn that they're invented in england and it's just really i think it's really important to recognize that like what we would call a police force probably the fir- the first ones we would recognize actually emerge around the end of the 18th century in us southern cities um and that's really important because it all of that is important because it it just shows us how the police's relation to the city is racialized um it's colonial Right. They're a colonial occupying force, even in the cities from which they, you know, they come. And, and, you know, these days that sort of happens literally often. The police live in the suburbs or like if you're in New York, they live in, you know, broad channel or whatever. Um, and if you're, you know, in, in a big city, they, they don't live in the city itself and the limits. They come in and that they sort of reenact this colonial relation, um, even to this day. Um, Yeah, I'm. I'm gonna. I'm gonna call it there. There's a a bunch of great books on this. Um, I have a chapter about it in my book. If If you're interested, I know it's available online. People can find
3: it. Well, I know. I mean, I know that you uh, sort of apologize for sticking to the you know historical framework there, but I think too, as you're saying, to understand really the contemporary uh, moment, it's really important to look at and, and interrogate how these things do actually uh, form, especially considering, you know, what I think, what do you see as a really, uh, you know, prevalent talking point whenever, um, uh, there are stirrings of, uh, more, uh, possible like rioting or movement activity or other things like that. But you see talking heads notably, I think in the last week, like, zaid jelani saying fucking (laughs) like i i don't understand where the internet got this idea that police come out of uh the response to slavery um and all all of these things because it's it's i I feel like when you're in this, this position um especially uh within like a media platform for example to cast off the difficult history as as sort of kookery or something, right? Um, yeah, but I mean, but and then beyond that, I think also, I think it's important just to understand how, because especially when we talk about a defensive looting or of rioting, I think it is really important to understand that as a tactic, it is as you you know really lay out very eloquently in the book. I think. Um, it, it is important to understand that while even some people on the left would say like, oh, the destruction of property or, or, or the, you know, the ignoring or abnegation of uh, property rights or, or, or things like that are, uh, you know, have, have like nothing to do with a refutation of policing <laughs> <laughs> that just completely ignores the fact that these structures are entirely bound up. Right. Together, I
1: remember in high school in American history class being told that you know, on the seventh day, God didn't rest, but God created police. And there's this kind of myth <laughs> at, uh, that the police <gasps> oh, have always sh- been there and that society Wait, will did, not.
0: Did, did a teacher really tell
3: you that? Do you literally, if- yeah, is that real? Yeah, what? Oh my god,
1: AP US <laughs> history, oh, well, there you go. yeah. Yeah. yeah I was in Florida it was in Florida this, this I mean, a,
0: so I'm, I'm going to interrupt you really briefly this is a really beautiful thing about a well, beautiful frustrating thing about learning history <laughs> is like we think it's really subtle and then you go back into the archive and people are just saying this shit really really directly <laughs> that they did just learned in the last 30 years to be more subtle but actually exactly. yeah actually it's just like really on the surface like you don't need to do like a, a, a sophisticated psychoanalytic flipping of the analysis like they're just there in the record saying all these things right
1: no you're you're totally right and there's this, this like myth that like oh you know society did not exist before police police have always been there we need police well
3: and and i think on this level of it being of uh policing being bound up with property but also the idea of kind of our uh contemporary understanding of property relations under under capitalism for example i think one you know one thing that is um I'm interested in for for example how when you're tracing the the history in your book of talking about how part of the construction of whiteness in America is in just in the the sort of like philosophical justification for the settler project mm-hmm. right um I mean you men- you mention uh you have a, I think a couple throwaway lines about like uh John Locke as the sort of philosopher de jour of property uh <laughs> for the colonial period. And um I think you know I think it's important to remember too, and this is just something I was thinking of as we were going through it, uh, because I think it it dovetails with a lot of the stuff we talk on the show. But um I think one of the interesting things about Locke and that period is that uh, it's not merely that the you know white settler colonists were uh j- just dismissive of uh in, like indigenous property or found it uh i think i think you say like ambiguous un- and unclear but it's also that Locke, as again, like John Locke is this, I think, really indicative figure of the the sort of settler philosophy of property and, uh, you know, colonial thinker of property, basically, for that particular conception of property, property and, and sort of land property is so bound up in this fanatical devotion to production, mm-hmm. like the idea of part of the idea of uh, sort of uh, the settler project and manifest destiny, it, it is not that the somehow the indigenous people uh, were incapable of ownership of the land because mm-hmm. ownership of the land is this idea that is bound up in being able to rest a productive resource, or like turn turn the land into this productive resource, right? right? So all, already, I guess tied up in um, yeah uh, it, a, ability or something. Yeah, totally. or, that's, or that's, productivity. Yeah, yeah, I
0: think this is like really really important. I've been thinking about this a lot recently. I, I didn't get it in my book enough um, uh, because it's one book and you can't get everything. Unfortunately, it would be really convenient. Yeah. I wouldn't have to write anymore. That would be really nice. Um, but um, but working sucks. Um, but yeah, I think like <laughs> yes, uh, Patrick. Wolf I believe um analyzes this a lot how Locke sort of you know talks about how property is the admixture of land and labor right and that like and that like on the ground in a settler colony the land is the indigenous you know the indigenous peoples and the labor is africans right and like that so it's always the sort of racialized conception um but I think one of the things that that I've really been, you know, I've been, I've been studying because I, I was ignorant about it. Um, and, and, and I think I want to also say, you know, I'm very fluent in all this history just because I've spent, like I said, I'm a nerd. I just read all of it, but I, but I, I, this entire project I built out of a, a recognition of my own ignorance and, and I continue to be ignorant um, in many, many ways about indigenous history. But one thing that I do know is that they were just much better scientists than the Europeans. The Europeans were really backwards. Um, they didn't understand. So, you know, like. You know, I think one of the things, one of the liberal myths we learn is that like, oh, the, the, the indigenous people just didn't understand what they meant by ownership or whatever. Right. Like that they just had a different conception of ownership. It's like, they did have a different conception of ownership that I think was closer to stewardship. They also understood what the Europeans meant, but they didn't think the Europeans had the capacity to enforce the law. And like what, what what the history of the U S of U S settling is, is just like literally just constant genocidal war, right? Like with, with these variety of indigenous nations that have their own internal political struggles. But, but, you know, there, there's these, you hear these stories, um, in the, in the colonial, the colonialist records and the records of the Spanish, you know, especially Spanish explorers in the West, um, you know, about these sort of, these sort of forest gardens that are also highways. Um, And, you know, indigenous people had developed roadways through the forest where you could travel from, I think it's like Mexico city up to like Halifax, like um, on foot, like you could just do it in, in a few weeks, I believe, like, or, or months, I mean, excuse me, months, but like, but like there was a road, there was like, there was literal roadway, like that was, that was managed and was like part of an infrastructure of agriculture and giving. And like, they, You know, one of the things that 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 um, settlers are always complaining about is like these indigenous people, they just constantly light these fires. It's so why? Why do they keep lighting these fires? It's horrible. (laughs) They have have to stop them from lighting all these fires. And now, right now, now, now fire is is a is a catastrophic disaster all the time because we stopped lighting. We stopped using the indigenous practices of, of, of forestry management. We stopped using indigenous agriculture practices. The, the settlers stole the potato and the tomato, um, and then they killed everyone and then they destroyed the, the earth, um, in pursuit of, of profit and property, um, which was like a really good strategy for all of us. It worked out really great. Um, but, um, you know, I think, yeah. So I think, I think it's, it's, uh, as I, as I've studied more and more, like I, I've, I've even gone further than in my book, like, the, the Europeans just didn't understand what they were looking at. The Europeans didn't understand, and they projected that not understanding onto the indig- oh, the indigenous people didn't understand. We were trying to buy Manhattan for a few beads or whatever. Our understanding of it is so upside down and backwards. Um, that, that I don't really think we have a clear concept. Um, and that's why we have to, you know, sort of really, really, you know, study with, with, um, indigenous radicals who are doing this work and, 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 and theorists and historians. Um, uh, and, but I think also, you know, yes, there, there, this all of these conceptions of property are actually just a history of genocidal violence. That has then that then justifies itself backwards, um, and increasingly uh, to me, with the collapse of the ecology of, of of this earth, it seems really clear that it's just untenable ideologically. Like there, there are so many angles from which we sh- we must recognize that this that 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 fourteen ninety two to the present has been a disaster. And that the yeah. concepts that we have from that period, whiteness, property, family, ability, um, health, right? Like to talk about, you know, these sort of questions uh, mental health, all of these things are so, so tied up in this fundamentally ecocidal project. Right. Um, yeah. And yeah,
3: I'm going to inject for just a moment and then I'll, I'll throw it, but I'm just, I, I just want to like uh, pop in for a second to say, I didn't even think about this when we went into this uh, discussion, but I am kind of reeling at how remarkably well this dovetails with the conversation that we had on Monday about the Pfizer vaccine, about, yes. the, about the vaccine mm-hmm. patents yes, and all exactly. of the fucking relationship there. Um, I'm, I'm you know, literally is- writing
0: a thing right now. Um, I, I'm I'm thinking very, very clearly about how intellectual property has been, Reinforced in the last 30 years, um, I think, I don't know if people saw, um, uh, like Zaid Jelani, another uh, man who I have a rent-free uh, summer mansion in his head, Lee Feng, <laughs> um, <laughs> recently did some 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 sort of valuable reporting um, about how um, the MPAA and the RIAA, um, the the movie Motion Picture Association and, and the record industry, are joining pharma in suing the WTO to stop them yeah. from releasing the copyright. And so I, I had written this article already, like it was already in drafts when that news came out. It was very helpful to me. I was like, oh yeah, I was right. That's good. That's always nice to know. Um, but about how, yeah, how this, this production of property and private property is now, you know, leading to um, this vaccine apartheid that is once, once again, distributing death across racial lines, across lines of ability and economy and class and nation um, and border um, and how. On some level, it should be unsurprising to those of us who know, who understand the history of property, that a defense of private property, even intellectual property, would lead to this kind of genocide, because that is what it is for. It is built right. on extracting the value um, uh, for a few people at the at the expense of of, of predominantly Black, Brown, and Indigenous peoples' yeah. um, ill health. Amen. To yeah. That.
1: Yeah, actually we're, aside as we're actually working on something for new inquiry about the same thing. Oh my
0: god, oh amazing okay, we'll we'll have competing pieces, it'll be perfect it'll be great. It'll be great.
1: Um, But yeah I mean, and even, like, if you look back to even, like, the formation of, like, our ideas about how we regulate and try and distribute health resources in this country, or how we, you know, conceive of disability versus ability, it's tied into this, like, notion of productivity that comes directly from the evaluation of, of, like, the health of slaves in slave trading markets, right? Like a lot of our systems that we use now to try and determine disability status or whether someone's eligible for public assistance like SNAP, these these programs have their origins back in the same place that, you know, police have. It's back down in like the, you know, issues of like, how do we um, assess a property that changes over time, right? Like how do we assess a property that can Um, sometimes like hide deficits or uh, things that would make them less valuable as workers. So Mm -hmm. this whole like conception of like coming Mm -hmm. at Health evaluation as this sort of like suspicious frame of assuming that like there are there are faults at people that they will hide, and that there are, you know, fakers and malingerers and those who like don't deserve the sport and deserve the support. That all comes from like the same, you know, the same time and the same sort of genesis of okay, like we're gonna just basically our whole society is like formed around the creation and social reproduction of like what is property and who. deserves and who has the right to that property and and i think so so often like when you hear people when you hear people dismiss looting as being like well those aren't people in the movement or Mm -hmm. like those are you know that's like gonna give us all a bad name or it's gonna make us you know it's like it's born out of this sort of dichotomy between like the the people who get to designate the property and the people who don't. And you you write about the sort of over reliance on the the figure of the white liberal mm-hmm. as a um uh, I don't even know, like a catalyst for change, right? And that there are so many sort of movement goals that have been subsumed. And this goes back to like the question that Phil raised at the beginning about, you know, the the parts of your book where you get into like how the labor movement has just um, you know, to put it Quite simply, just like betrayed black people over and over and over again and betrayed their own um, membership over and over and over again through these sort of negotiations where there's this assumption that like through respectability, through a seat at the table, that that is the way that we, you know, make positive change is, is not through collective direct action, but is through this sort of assimilation into the like property structure. Right. Mm hmm
0: yeah thank yeah oh my god once again you all are like just i don't know i could do this for like hours and hours i'm so appreciative (laughs) i'm sorry to, to to keep saying that i guess but you know, I think on one level, like one of the things your question made me think about is like maybe the first piece of modern settler medical technology is the smallpox blanket, right? Um, but then, yeah. like, I'm thinking about you know how you know um, so much of modern medicine um, has been built on um, on you know uh, gynecology is experiments on the plantation, um, and then you know like across the, the 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 event called emancipation, which tragically was was more continuous than not, um, you know know how how the um the the slave gets turned into the criminal and the vagrant um and then the vagrant is seen as as um as work shy right this is like a it's like a psychic it's a psychological problem like it's, it's similar to um uh, was it? Oppositional defiant disorder. Now, right? Oh my like, God! Um, yes. <laughs> uh, and like, so work shyness is this like is this this word that is classically used to describe um, black and indigenous people who don't want to be enslaved um, or, or or work for a master um, and uh, and you know like that's. That's that goes back to the very beginning, where um, you know the the one of the big complaints, one of the reasons that the African slave trade em- trade emerges, is because the genocidal disposition of of indigenous labor, um, of indigenous people. Also featured this common complaint. It's across the historical record. Ugh, these indigenous people just don't make good workers. They're just not well disciplined. They're just like they're not smart enough. They're not like, you know, like, um, and then like, you know, again, like African, you know, the the in the in the you know, in the turn to slavery, like the, the formation of modern racism, you know, black people are lazy and ignorant, um, right? This is like a, you know, this is, this is a slander uh, leveled against the people who have built all of the wealth in this country, right? And and so I think, yeah, when it comes to ability and health and queerness too, um, I know, I think um, um, Jules Gilles Peterson was on here talking about this a bit. I think I, I remember mm-hmm. that episode, like how, how, trans people are, you know, brought into medical establishments, experimented on and then thrown out. Um, that obviously happens to, to black people, to indigenous people. So there's all these questions about productivity and about fitness, um, ability, right. Um, and, and ability just means like capacity to work until you're old enough to drop dead, right? Like until you're too old to really continue to work productively. Um, and if you don't have that, then you're disabled. Like if you aren't, if you aren't, capable of um of disciplining yourself um for 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 any for a variety of reasons or or submitting to discipline Um, and that that could be mental health Um, i think Mm -hmm. i'm sure y'all know this um on on this panel but and, and listeners will know but like before the 60s the number of people who were in mental health institutions um was like very very similar to the percentage of people who are in prisons now right so there are all these different modes of basically determining some people as valid you know, whiteness being the whiteness being the the most central, definitely globally as well. Whiteness being the, the most um, the most powerful, but not the only way of deciding um, how how someone is capable of receiving owning property, receiving owning citizenship, having a political voice. So when people on the left talk about these people are not real political actors. Right? Mm-hmm. These, these looters are not really doing politics. They're not really thinking or knowing or being with the movement unbeknownst to themselves. They are reproducing this division that goes all the way back as Sylvia Winter shows that uh, forms the epistemological basis for all of like you know, capitalist society, um, but it continues into the present into this sort of sense of the political subject who is capable of being a citizen who is capable of acting politically who is capable of thinking and again I have these double I have these double responses which is like on the one hand like that logic is incredibly violent like that well that's one thought that logic is incredibly violent and we can yeah. either sort of say no 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 these people are political subjects they are acting politically you just can't see it or we can say you're right your conception of politics is is trash and I'm not interested in acting politically <laughs> the way you think about it <laughs> and I think those are both good responses. And I and and depending on my mood, I will give one or the other, I think, depending on the day.
1: Yeah, I don't think you should have to be nailed down to give anyone one answer. That's right. it, yeah, yeah I, th- I think in like demanding that often you like there's this demand for simplicity that that is so reductive that it just like reproduces like dominant power. It, also, it, yeah.
3: I, I think part of the reason to have a conversation like this and to and to, I mean, read your book really too yeah. is for, Thank I think too. is for, for, uh, you know, people who could be, who could fall into the trap of reproducing, like sort of reproducing that logic through the sort of exclusion of uh, the like exclusionary idea of political activity mm-hmm. that they're 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 sort of bound up in to really understand which would benefit them, too, I think, because the, the, the scope of political activity, if you limit it to not include rioting and, and looting, you're you're completely uh, not, not only do you sort of uh, cut, like, cut yourself out uh, off from so Many very important viable tactics, uh, right. basically, but also you you are under threat. I think of just completely misinterpreting history.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. If you if you you can't understand then it becomes almost impossible to understand how the French Revolution starts how the Haitian Revolution starts how the how the um the the Russian Revolution the February Revolution is like non-political if you think that way you know because that's largely it's largely um Russian women bread rioting in the cities is what starts February 1917 right I mean it's just like you know I think one of the things that's really that's really I, I'm it's this is a, a a bee in my bonnet I'm always talking about this I'm sorry everyone um but like so many so much of reactionary politics is just what 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 psychoanalysts call projection, right? So like you have an opinion about yourself and you project it onto an other. And this might feel a little off topic, but I think it's going to relate back. Um, There's... You know, so much of the slander against trans people from turfs is that mm-hmm. we reinforce the gender binary, right? They're like we reinforce the gender binary um, because, of, and of course, like it is the contribution of trans theory. One of the greatest contributions of trans theory, and one thing that trans theorists and trans people are really, really good at, is not falling into the trap of like something only being one thing at once. Um, And I think we really like the left is really good at being like, like, you know, like putting things into a sort of binary or moralistic um, or sometimes they call it, you know, anti-imperialist when really they just mean anti-US political frame in which um, in which something that is good is against it and something that is bad is for it. You know what I mean? I'm I'm, I'm like, it's just Mm -hmm. really, really reductive idea of like, you know, oh, like looting isn't really political or um, or. Or you know, rioting, rioting is is unproductive for the movement. Um, and I like I sort of I think what I'm pointing to a bit, and what I'm hearing myself point to uh, as we have this conversation is like, like yes and no, like yeah, it, like is un- it's unproductive for your your movement. Like the person standing there saying that, it's like it's true. Like I've been thinking a lot recently. It has been so frustrating to me to watch the social democratic left um, in its in its sort of mouthpiece forms talk about and re-narrativize the last ten years of increasingly intense street struggle as Occupy Bernie Sanders yeah
3: right and yeah. like
0: maybe some Black Lives Matter right like like just erasing like so much history doing so much live historical analysis but then you know then i've been seeing people you know now that trump and bernie are gone and they have no political content because like the, all they think is like unions are good and bernie sanders should be president so like now there's not much left um like i think like for some of them not all of them obviously um you know whatever also on this pod sorry I, i'm really being such a jerk right now um
2: but, um, but if you uh, feel
3: called out right now yeah, you're I'm also so being sorry. invited I, like, I, it's I, okay it's you're, in, in. you're being invited to to like uh go go bigger go, yes
0: yeah, i love exactly. you you
3: can do better um
0: we than all have embarrassing past. Politics, you know, I promise. Like,
1: mm-hmm. I used to listen to AFI, right? Like, still have love listen, for it. Move I don't down. think
3: you're embarrassed by that. I'm
1: That's not. Okay. That's, I'm not. Yeah. No, yeah, you're
0: proud. I, I, here's something I am embarrassed for. In 2008, I went door to door in New Hampshire for John Edwards. Okay. Oh man. We, do, we are not born with a Molotov in our hand. Okay, like we do not, <laughs> we do not like come out like. Um, and it's okay to develop and change and, and, but yes, and I think trans theorists are so good at, at seeing that and recognizing that. So like being able to say like, yes, this riot is unproductive to your movement. So when those, when those social Democrats say, oh, the left has done nothing over the last 10 years. I have this one impulse. It's like, what are you talking about? Like, this has been the biggest global wave of movement since the 60s. Like, we're like in a proto-revolutionary situation in the United States and like all over the world. Like, are you are you nuts? Um, which is a bad thing to say uh, uh, to <laughs> someone. And I apologize for that coming out, that very ableist thing to say. But are, 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 do you, are you not looking? Are you not seeing? Are you not seeing the world? Man. Are you not again? Wow. It's so hard, isn't it? insult people without being ableist it really makes you think um, I,
1: anyway. mean, I as the blind person i could say are you fucking blind yeah exactly like, yeah, how can you, you how can you look at what's been going on and say that this and 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 try and belittle it too yeah. because it's it, it undermines the the fact that like i think all of these autonomous things are very fragile and they're very dynamic and they're like you know they're not necessarily um a given to stay, right? Like, and this is something that, like, I think is really important is that, you know, your your work points out not only, I think, the power of expropriation, looting, rioting, of, like, pushing the bounds of, like, you know, the reasons we're told that civil order needs to be enforced by police. But like you also show that, you know, the removal of that kind of energy is has this tremendous demobilizing capacity. Right. And Mm -hmm. and that there's this sort of like call for respectability and, you know, protecting our, you know, protecting our neighborhood property. Like, how dare you, um, Mm -hmm. you know, bomb our target or whatever, like good old target. And that that there's this like there's this. uh Translation that happens where where things really are slowed down and undermined and change becomes reform and reform re re-entrenches the same, you know, dominant power and and we just have a more humane, more aesthetically pleasing prison system, you know, and and. and, and and I think it's really like an important point is how your work also shows like how fragile this stuff is.
3: Yeah, I think that's a I think that's a really good point. And actually this brings me to something that I uh wanted to talk to you about, Vicky, maybe just as a final thing so mm. we could wrap out. Um there's a quote that you use in your book that I just absolutely love for the the pure ideology that it reveals. Um, which I I will apologize in advance. I tried so hard to find the recording of this, but it appears that the Baltimore De- Police Department has scrubbed it from their YouTube okay. and other various social media uh, channels. I think partially maybe because the person who said this was fired a couple days after. <laughs> um, but in 2015, Baltimore Police Commissioner uh, Anthony Batts um, said of... A uh, person that they had just arrested. "Quote: Raymond Carter burned a CVS, our CVS, <laughs> to the ground." Um, I just wondered if you could talk about that because I just feel like that's the definition of a lot going on there.
0: <laughs> yeah, thank you. I was also actually thinking of that, um, that quote, uh, and that, and that way of thinking. Um, in in as we was talking, and it's just like. It's just so, um, it's so symptomatic that, um, that what own, what our means to, to, to middle-class people, to the police, to the, the owners, um, you know, what our means is our CVS, you know, this thing that, you know, like you know, liberals on a good day when, they're, when their personal well-being isn't being threatened, like, they'll say, like, oh, I hate corporations or whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but then you're like, oh, yeah, me too. Like, that's why I burn them down. They're like, whoa, like, you're totally <laughs> what's wrong with you? Like, I, th- I thought you were political. And you're like, I was just listening to, like, you, like, raised me to think this was bad. Like, I don't understand. Um, like, I'm just trying to do something about it. And they're like, no, no, no. Yeah, the whole I,
1: point. <laughs> I hate corporations, but I love my target. Yeah. Right. I mean.
0: or, 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 or I hate corporations.
1: Target.
0: Yeah, exactly emitage. Yeah, liberals like the 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 fundamental liberal impulse is to um personally do nothing. Um, to you know, other than voting, obviously, but like the
2: like like liberalism, pondering, <laughs> scratching the chin, and so yeah. on. No, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Come on, now, liberalism is
0: like is like built on like being on the moral high ground, um, like being correct, but never having to like follow through on it. Um, you know, like so, it's like, oh, it's like this is such a bad system. Like, yeah, like technically, I'm comfortable. Like, I have this house and like I'm really cozy and happy. But like the system is really like could change a little, you know, um, but not. But these people who want to change it are really like out of their minds, you know, Um, that's how liberals see us. I I hope. Um, And I and, you know, I as a, you know, mentally ill transsexual anarchist, like I want them to know, like, I'm coming for your shit. Um, But um, (laughs) I'm coming for your CVS. Um, But yeah, I think like, you know, like I think. What's what's really interesting too, though, about about the the way that these riots get talked about is that often people say, you know, oh, you're destroying your own neighborhood, you know, you're destroying this Target, you're destroying this CVS, like, oh my God, it's so sad. But like, but like, it, or, or like, it takes more, or, you know, whatever, to be less sarcastic, like, oh my God, why did you destroy that small business that you know was this sort of community center? And the relation of middle class people to the city, right, is that like. These small businesses, these targets, or or these, or these corporate, but whatever, whichever these businesses, that's how they interact with the city. That's how they understand it, right? They have their job and they like go and they work and like that's where they like see their neighbors and they like see them they're like friendly and you know that's where they get to like yell at an employee who like doesn't know what they're doing and like get out all their aggression, like you know like that's 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 how they use those spaces. So for them, they really are the city. It really is the city, right? Whereas the people who are rioting um, and looting these places are the customers who get watched and followed in those businesses because of racist practices. The people who have worked in those stores... Um, who Mm -hmm. have been exploited terribly, who have been treated like trash by their managers, um, who have, you know, worked thankless, thankless hours getting yelled at by the same white liberals who are like, Oh my God, our CVS or the police, you know, like those are the exact same people who come in and like take out all of their emotional problems on a service employee. And it's a certain when the service employee is like, you know what? Like, I'm sick of this. I'm going to go get what's mine. I'm going to go get the actual value of all of the work I've done over my life in one night of like joyous pleasure. I'm going to go like consume and like take the makeup and the medicine and the food and like whatever else it is that like I, my me and people like me have spent our whole lives making, but have unavailable to us. And as soon as they do that, the liberals panic and they say, why are you destroying your own CVS? Why are you, you know, um, there's this, this TikTok going around right now that I like, I literally like watch five times every time it comes up. It's really unhealthy. Um, I, like, I, I'm a little OCD or something, I guess. But, um, you know, like, but it's, it's this, this sort of guy responding to um, complaints from customers in an Ikea, you know, and they say, you just lost yourself a customer. And he says, like, you think I own this business? You think I own Ikea?
2: I'm telling all my friends not to shop here. Tell him. You think I want five other U's running around the store? Have them call me. I'll tell them. You think you hate this place more than me? I work here.
0: You know, like <laughs> what? Like what do people think? Like middle class people? It really is their CVS. Because that's their experience of the city. And rich people, it's their CVS because they're making, you know, their their every sale that goes through, like, brings them a brings them a few pennies, right? So like the bourgeoisie like really own the CVS, but the middle class like have a have a genuine emotional relationship to the CVS. Um, I think that's real. And they're embarrassed by it, which is why like that 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 disjunction, right? Like the 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 difference between the liberal who says, like, oh, I hate corporations and the conservative who says, I love corporations, like start looting it and you'll find out they have the same opinion about the corporations, right? Like, like, <laughs> right. or even just say like I did, Hey, looting, it makes sense as a strategy. And right. like they will, and they will have a panic attack, you know? Um,
3: well, and I, I think that's such a, it, it's such an important point to the thing that you raise about this sort of being for a certain class of people. It is uh, the, like these, these places are sort of the civic interface. Mm-hmm. Whereas yeah. for so many other people, they experience the city or they experience their experience of the state is manifested in extremely yeah. diff- different ways. Um, but I think revealing that and also saying that, for example, when you start talking about that scale, when you when you start talking about, for example, they like they, they looted our CVS, <laughs> they, they burned down our CVS. It is really, I think, as absurd as saying they they burned down our BlackRock they, mm-hmm. blur- they burn. They burned down our palantir or something. They burned you know down I mean? our
0: plantation, our beautiful plantation. <laughs> also, that yeah.
3: Yeah. I mean, but you know, these are the 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 examples that uh, that I gave. Are you know obviously places that don't have a public interface, but right. nevertheless do have a material you know uh, impact on the lives of middle class people. Um, yeah. You know. So
0: totally. No. Yeah. And and I think you know and I think that that you know there's this really really deep. Way in which the urban is a space where white liberals consume blackness. And when yeah. black people destroy that, they get really huffy. Because they want to keep consuming blackness in a safe way that doesn't involve them having to question themselves. So they get to feel like a good urban member of society. And that's not just liberals. That's a lot of leftists, too. Um, That's a lot of white people um, in in these cities, a lot of organizers. um, Certainly, probably myself at different times. I've had that attitude as a white person living in, in that critique emerges from a critique of myself, from reflection on myself. I want to be really clear. Like I am a white person. I'm a settler. Like that's not. I'm not. Tr- I am not trying to then claim this authenticity. Like in opposition to these non-authentic white people or whatever. I want to abolish my whiteness and I want to abolish all whiteness, and I want to abolish all property because it produces these incredibly, incredibly um, vile, vile psychic mm-hmm. structures that lead to someone saying defending a CVS. Defending a CVS, an insured CVS, a corporation right. that has incredible profits. Defending a CVS and saying, "Yes, it's sad that police kill you, but it wasn't worth it to, to attack a CVS." <laughs> That's what whiteness does to people's to people's you know ability to 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 live ethically in the world, and that yeah. needs to be abolished. And the only yeah. way we're going to abolish police, and the only way we're going to abolish prisons, the only way we're going to abolish property is if we abolish whiteness. It has to be all together. Um, and, and ableism as well. I mean, I, you know, I'm not just throwing that in there. Like, like I, well, maybe I am like a bit, I guess, but like, but like, (laughs) I also want to be really like clear, like that these, there's this leftist tendency to try and find the prime contradiction or like the number one thing. And it's like, no, they are all interrelated, inter interlocked, um, co-producing and co-reproducing. Um, and we need to be able to see that And to recognize that that's going to mean that there won't just be one means of attack, there won't just be one means of struggle. There are going to be thousands of different struggles and attacks and and moves that are going to lead towards that. And that has, in the history of America, been the way that... Um, Reconstruction and the second Reconstruction in the 50s that has been the way That we have moved in any way where we have Towards justice and it will have to continue To be and I want to be on that side Of that I don't want to tell that That side what to do wrong because I don't Know I'm just some girl like what do I Know
1: (laughs) right well I mean I have to say like your Your book Vicki is fantastic It's such an important history And it's such a concise And well argued book I highly Recommend people go ahead and um pick up a copy and read it. And Vicky, thank you so much for coming on.
0: Thank you so much.
1: This has been an absolute pleasure. Like, oh my God! Above such, and beyond.
0: Such a pleasure. I have never, well, I have very rarely had the experience of like, oh, is it over? Like, I want to keep going. This conversation's so nice. So thank you guys. I know so there's much. like
1: so many things we could keep talking about. Oh,
0: yeah, always like that. Thank you all for for all the incredible work you do. It's really it's really shifted my perspective. Um, I'm just so I'm so grateful for y'all and for having me on. Um, and and keep it up. And you know, I I think we'll I think we can win this.
1: I did. I, I do too, so, honestly. Too. And again. You know, follow Vicky on Twitter. I think you're <laughs> locked right now. But um, yeah, I
0: got uh, Andy. Andy, no, um, pissed his pants over some, some, some incendiary oh, uh, yeah. insurrective theory I did. So I had to lock for a minute. But yeah, Vicky, editor <laughs> APAB. And yeah. And, uh, and, and if you want a um, uh, slightly less shrill anarchist screaming, yeah, uh, the podcast, Cerise and Vicky Ranked the Movies is, is, a, is a nice place to start as well.
1: Highly recommend. And we'll have to have you back soon.
0: Yes, please. Thank you so much.
1: Listeners, thank you for hanging out. We will catch you in the next episode. As always, Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. not seen Paddington clearly oh they're really good out. they're so good <laughs>
0: highly recommend I actually almost we, we ended up like just going to bed but we almost threw on Paddington 2 last night they're really we good the first one and hadn't seen the second yet so the second one big, with
2: the Hugh Grant is the baddie and he's <laughs> so bad it's oh my god he's like he's a great villain I don't know why he wasn't cast as a villain more
0: Hugh Grant's heel turn over the last five years he's also the bad guy in a bunch of tv shows right now like to completely get oh, off on the wrong pendant nice. <laughs> so good. He is such a good villain. He's so smarmy and creepy and gross, while still being dreamy and handsome. It's perfect.
1: I but mean, yeah, any go. use of him as a love interest was really misguided and tells you a lot about the '90s. I feel like. But,
2: <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, back to our <laughs> back to <this laughs> very serious, right, very hard, serious political
0: it, discussion. No, aside. no. I mean.